Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome back to Eli Reads. This is Chapter 9 of Salambo, Gustave Flaubert's story of the mercenary war. There's really, as we learn in this chapter, more than two sides to this war, even though only one country is involved. Quick recap, Hamilcar Barca, who used to command the barbarian mercenaries on behalf of Carthage in Carthage's war with Rome, is now commanding a loose mix of Carthaginian citizens and other mercenaries against the guys he used to lead. Because those guys, the guys he used to lead, the barbarian mercenaries, unpaid and nursing grudges, have decided to turn against Carthage, their former masters, and they are largely egged on by Spendius and given soldierly courage by Matho. But as we hear in this chapter, actually Hamilcar has problems with Carthage too. Now, I like this chapter because we get uh, more about the women in the baggage bringing up the rear of these armies, we also get the first real taste of the bloodlust that gets truly unleashed near the end of the book, as well as a strong foreshadowing of the hunger that's in store. Let's get into it. Chapter 9, In the Field. Hamilcar had thought that the mercenaries would await him at Utica, or that they would return against him, and finding his forces insufficient to make or to sustain an attack, he had struck southwards along the right bank of the river, thus protecting himself immediately from a surprise. He intended first to wink at the revolt of the tribes and to detach them all from the cause of the barbarians. Then, when they were quite isolated in the midst of the provinces, he would fall upon them and exterminate them. In 14 days, he pacified the region comprised between Thukaber and Utica, with the towns of Tignacaba, Tasura, Vaca, and others further to the west. Zungar, built in the mountains, Asura, celebrated for its temple, Gerardo, fertile in junipers, Thapatis, and Hagur sent embassies to him. The country people came with their hands full of provisions, implored his protection, kissed his feet and those of the soldiers, and complained of the barbarians. Some came to offer him bags containing heads of mercenaries killed, so they said, by themselves, but which they had cut off corpses. For many had lost themselves in their flight, and were found dead here and there, beneath the olive trees and among the vines. 
On the morrow of his victory, Hamilcar, to dazzle the people, had sent to Carthage the 2,000 captives taken on the battlefield. They arrived in long companies of 100 men each, all with their arms fastened behind their backs with a bar of bronze which caught them at the nape of the neck, and the wounded, bleeding as they still were, running also along. Horsemen followed them, driving them on with blows of the whip. And then there was a delirium of joy. People repeated that there were 6,000 barbarians killed. The others would not hold out, and the war was finished. They embraced one another in the streets and rubbed the faces of the Patek gods with butter and cinnamon to thank them. These, with their big eyes, their big bodies, and their arms raised as high as the shoulder, seemed to live beneath their freshened paint and to participate in the cheerfulness of the people. The rich left their doors open. The city resounded with the noise of the timbrels. The temples were illuminated every night, and the servants of the goddess went down to Malqua and set up stages of sycamore wood at the corners of the crossways and prostituted themselves there. Lands were voted to the conquerors, holocausts to Melkarth, 300 gold crowns to the Sufit, and his partisans proposed a decree to him new prerogatives and honors. He had begged the ancients to make overtures to Autoritus for exchanging all the barbarians, if necessary, for the aged Gisco and the other Carthaginians detained like him. The Libyans and nomads composing the army under Autoritus knew scarcely anything of these mercenaries who were men of Italian or Greek race, and the offer by the Republic of so many barbarians for so few Carthaginians showed that the value of the former was nothing, and that of the latter considerable. They dreaded a snare. Autoritus refused. Then the ancients decreed the execution of the captives, although the Sufit had written to them not to put them to death. He reckoned upon incorporating the best of them with his own troops, and of thus instigating defections, but hatred swept away all circumspection. The two thousand barbarians were tied to the stella of the tombs in the Mappalian quarter, and traders, scullions, embroiderers, and even women, the widows of the dead with their children, all who would, came to kill them with arrows. They aimed slowly at them, the better to prolong their torture, lowering the weapon and then raising it in turn, and the multitude pressed forward, howling. Paralytics had themselves brought thither in handbarrows. Many took the precaution of bringing their food and remained on the spot until the evening. Others passed the night there. Tents had been set up in which drinking went on. Many gained large sums by hiring out bows. Then all these crucified corpses were left upright, looking like so many red statues on the tombs and the excitement even spread to the people of Malqua, who were the descendants of the aboriginal families and were usually indifferent to the affairs of their country. Out of gratitude for the pleasure it had been giving them, they now interested themselves in its fortunes and felt that they were Carthaginians, and the ancients thought it a clever thing to have thus blended the entire people in a single act of vengeance. The sanction of the gods was not wanting, for crows alighted from all quarters of the sky, they wheeled in the air as they flew with loud hoarse cries and formed a huge cloud rolling continually upon itself. It was seen from Clypea, Rades, and the promontory of Hermium 
Sometimes it would suddenly burst asunder, its black spirals extending far away as an eagle clove the center of it and then departed again. Here and there on the terraces, the domes, the peaks of the obelisks, and the pediments of the temples, there were big birds holding human fragments in their reddened beaks. Owing to the smell, the Carthaginians resigned themselves to unbind the corpses. A few of them were burnt, the rest were thrown into the sea, and the waves, driven by the north wind, deposited them on the shore at the end of the gulf before the camp of Autoritus. This punishment had no doubt terrified the barbarians, for from the top of Eshmoon they could be seen striking their tents, collecting their flocks, and hoisting their baggage upon asses, and on the evening of the same day the entire army withdrew. It was to march to and fro between the mountain of the hot springs and Hippozoritis, and so debar the Sufit from approaching the Tyrian towns and from the possibility of a return to Carthage. Meanwhile, the two other armies were to try to overtake him in the south, Spendius in the east and Matho in the west, in such a way that all three should unite to surprise and entangle him. Then they received a reinforcement which they had not looked for, Narhavas appeared with 300 camels laden with bitumen, 25 elephants, and 6,000 horsemen. To weaken the mercenaries, the Sufit had judged it prudent to occupy his attention at a distance in his own kingdom. From the heart of Carthage, he had come to an understanding with Masgaba, a Getulian brigand who was seeking to found an empire. Strengthened by Punic money, the adventurer had raised the Numidian states with promises of freedom. But Narhavas, warned by his nurse's son, had dropped into Sirta, poisoned the conquerors with the water of the cisterns, struck off a few heads, set all right again, and had just arrived against the Sufit more furious than the barbarians. The chiefs of the four armies concerted the arrangements for the war. It would be a long one, and everything must be foreseen. It was agreed first to entreat the assistance of the Romans, and this mission was offered to Spendius, but as a fugitive he dared not undertake it. Twelve men from the Greek colonies embarked at Anaba, in a sloop belonging to the Numidians. Then the chiefs exacted an oath of complete obedience from all the barbarians. Every day the captains inspected clothes and boots. The sentries were even forbidden to use a shield, for they would often lean it against their lance and fall asleep as they stood. Those who had any baggage trailing after them were obliged to get rid of it. Everything was to be carried in Roman fashion on the back. As a precaution against the elephants, Matho instituted a corps of cataphract cavalry, men and horses being hidden beneath cuirasses of hippopotamus skin, bristling with nails, and to protect the horses' hoofs, boots of plaited esparto grass were made for them. It was forbidden to pillage the villages or to tyrannize over the inhabitants who were not of Punic race. But as the country was becoming exhausted, Matho ordered the provisions to be served out to the soldiers individually, without troubling about the women. At first, the men shared with them. Many grew weak for lack of food. It was the occasion of many quarrels and invectives, many drawing away the companions of the rest by the bait or even by the promise of their own portion. Matho commanded them all to be driven away, pitilessly. They took refuge in the camp of Autoritus, but the Gaulish and Libyan women forced them by their outrageous treatment to depart. 
At last they came beneath the walls of Carthage to implore the protection of Ceres and Proserpine, for in Byrsa there was a temple with priests consecrated to these goddesses in expiation of the horrors formerly committed at the siege of Syracuse. The Sicitia, alleging their right to waifs and strays, claimed the youngest in order to sell them, and some fair Lacedaemonian women were taken by new Carthaginians in marriage. A few persisted in following the armies. They ran on the flank of the Syntagmata by the side of the captains. They called to their husbands, pulled them by the cloak, cursed them as they beat their breasts, and held out their little naked and weeping children at arm's length. The sight of them was unmanning the barbarians. They were an embarrassment, a peril. Several times they were repulsed, but they came back again. Matho made the horsemen belonging to Narhavas charge them with the point of the lance, and on some Balearans shouting out to him that they must have women, he replied, I have none. Just now he was invaded by the genius of Moloch. In spite of the rebellion of his conscience, he performed terrible deeds, imagining that he was thus obeying the voice of a god. When he could not ravage the fields, Matho would cast stones in them to render them sterile. He urged Autoritus and Spendius with repeated messages to make haste, but the Sufit's operations were incomprehensible. He encamped at Aidus, Monkar, and Tehent successively. Some scouts believed that they saw him in the neighborhood of Ischil, near the frontiers of Narhavas, and it was reported that he had crossed the river above Taburba as though to return to Carthage. Scarcely was he in one place when he removed to another. The routes that he followed always remained unknown, the Sufit preserved his advantages without offering battle, and while pursued by the barbarians, seemed to be leading them. These marches and countermarches were still more fatiguing to the Carthaginians, and Hamilcar's forces, receiving no reinforcements, diminished from day to day. The country people were now more backward in bringing him provisions. In every direction he encountered taciturn hesitation and hatred, and in spite of his entreaties to the great council, no succor came from Carthage. It was said, perhaps it was believed, that he had need of none. It was a trick, or his complaints were unnecessary, and Hanno's partisans, in order to do him an ill turn, exaggerated the importance of his victory. The troops which he commanded he was welcome to, but they were not going to supply his demands continually in that way. The war was quite burdensome enough. It had cost too much, and from pride, the patricians belonging to his faction supported him, but slackly. Then Hamilcar, despairing of the Republic, took by force from the tribes all that he wanted for the war. Grain, oil, wood, cattle, and men. But the inhabitants were not long in taking flight. The villages passed through were empty, and the cabins were ransacked without anything being discerned in them. The Punic army was soon encompassed by a terrible solitude. The Carthaginians, who were furious, began to sack the provinces. They filled up the cisterns and fired the houses. The sparks, being carried by the wind, were scattered far off, and whole forests were on fire on the mountains. They bordered the valleys with crowns of flames, and it was often necessary to wait in order to pass beyond them. Then the soldiers resumed their march over the warm ashes in the full glare of the sun. Sometimes they would see what looked like the eyes of a tiger cat gleaming in a bush by the side of the road. This was a barbarian crouching upon his heels and smeared with dust that he might not be distinguished from the color of the foliage. 
Or perhaps when passing along a ravine, those on the wings would suddenly hear the rolling of stones and raise their eyes and would perceive a barefooted man bounding along through the openings of the gorge. Meanwhile, Utica and Hippo Zoritis were free, since the mercenaries were no longer besieging them. Hamilcar commanded them to come to his assistance, but not caring to compromise themselves, they answered him with vague words, with compliments and excuses. He went up again abruptly into the north, determined to open up one of the Tyrian towns, though he were obliged to lay siege to it. He required a station on the coast so as to be able to draw supplies and men from the islands or from Cyrene, and he coveted the harbor of Utica as being the nearest to Carthage. The Sufit, therefore, left Zutine and turned the lake of Hippozoritis with circumspection. But he was soon obliged to lengthen out his regiments into column in order to climb the mountain which separates the two valleys. They were descending at sunset into its hollow, funnel-shaped summit, when they perceived on the level of the ground before them bronze she-wolves which seemed to be running across the grass. Suddenly large plumes arose, and a terrible song burst forth, accompanied by the rhythm of flutes. It was the army under Spendius, for some Campanians and Greeks, in their execration of Carthage, had assumed the ensigns of Rome. At the same time, long pikes, shields of leopard skin, linen cuirasses, and naked shoulders were seen on the left. These were the Iberians under Matho, the Lusitanians, Balearans, and Getulians. The horses of Narhavas were heard to neigh. They spread around the hill. Then came the loose rabble commanded by Autoritus, Gauls, Libyans, and nomads, while the eaters of uncleanness might be recognized among them by the fish bones which they wore in their hair. Thus the barbarians, having contrived their marches with exactness, had come together again. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. But themselves surprised, they remained motionless for some minutes in consultation. The Sufit had collected his men into an orbicular mass in such a way as to offer an equal resistance in every direction. The infantry were surrounded by their tall, pointed shields fixed close to one another in the turf. 
The clinabarians were outside, and the elephants at intervals further off. The mercenaries were worn out with fatigue. It was better to wait until the next day, and the barbarians, feeling sure of their victory, occupied themselves the whole night in eating. They lighted large, bright fires, which, while dazzling themselves, left the Punic army below them in the shade. Hamilcar caused a trench fifteen feet broad and ten cubits deep to be dug in Roman fashion round his camp, and the earth thrown out to be raised on the inside into a parapet on which sharp interlacing stakes were planted. And at sunrise the mercenaries were amazed to perceive all the Carthaginians thus entrenched as if in a fortress. They could recognize Hamilcar in the midst of the tents, walking about and giving orders. His person was clad in a brown cuirass cut in little scales. He was followed by his horse and stopped from time to time to point out something with his right arm outstretched. Then more than one recalled similar mornings when, amid the din of clarions, he passed slowly before them, and his looks strengthened them like cups of wine. A kind of emotion overcame them. Those, on the contrary, who were not acquainted with Hamilcar were mad with joy at having caught him. Nevertheless, if all attacked at once, they would do one another mutual injury in the insufficiency of space. The Numidians might dash through, but the Clinabarians, who were protected by cuirasses, would crush them. And then how were the palisades to be crossed? As to the elephants, they were not sufficiently well trained. "'You were all cowards!' exclaimed Matho and with the best among them he rushed against the entrenchment. They were repulsed by a volley of stones, for the Sufid had taken their abandoned catapults on the bridge. This want of success produced an abrupt change in the fickle minds of the winds would be exhausted, and the catapults worn out. The mercenaries, who were ten times as numerous, would triumph in the end. The Sufid devised negotiations so as to gain time. And one morning the barbarians found a sheepskin covered with writings within their lines. He justified himself for his victory. The ancients had forced him into the war, and to show them that he was keeping his word, he offered them the pillaging of Utica, or Hippozoritis at their choice. In conclusion, Hamilcar declared that he did not fear them, because he had won over some traitors, and thanks to them, would easily manage the rest. The barbarians were disturbed. This proposal of immediate booty made them consider. They were apprehensive of treachery, not suspecting a snare in the Sufit's boasting, and they began to look upon one another with mistrust. Words and steps were watched. Terrors awakened them in the night. Many forsook their companions and chose their army as fancy dictated, and the Gauls with Autoritus went and joined themselves with the men of Cisalpine Gaul, whose language they understood. The four chiefs met together every evening, in Matho's tent, and squatting around a shield, attentively moved backwards and forwards the little wooden figures invented by Pyrrhus for the representation of maneuvers. Spendius would demonstrate Hamilcar's resources, and with oaths by all the gods entreat that the opportunity should not be wasted. Matho would walk about angry and gesticulating. The war against Carthage was his own personal affair. He was indignant that the others should interfere in it without being willing to obey him, Autoritus would divine his speech from his countenance and applaud. Narhavas would elevate his chin to mark his disdain. It was not a measure he did not consider fatal, and he had ceased to smile. Sighs would escape him as though he were thrusting back sorrow for an impossible dream. 
despair for an abortive enterprise. While the barbarians deliberated in uncertainty, the Sufit increased his defenses. He had a second trench dug within the palisades, a second wall raised, and wooden towers constructed at the corners, and his slaves went as far as the middle of the outposts to drive caltrops into the ground. But the elephants, whose allowances were lessened, struggled in their shackles. To economize the grass, he ordered the clinabarians to kill the least strong among the stallions. A few refused to do so, and he had them decapitated. The horses were eaten. The recollection of this fresh meat was a source of great sadness to them in the days that followed. From the bottom of the amphitheater in which they were confined, they could see the four bustling camps of the barbarians all around them on the heights. Women moved about with leathern bottles on their heads. Goats strayed bleating beneath the piles of pikes. Sentries were being relieved, and eating was going on around tripods. In fact, the tribes furnished them abundantly with provisions, and they did not themselves suspect how much their inaction alarmed the Punic army. On the second day, the Carthaginians had remarked a troop of 300 men, apart from the rest, in the camp of the nomads. These were the rich who had been kept prisoners since the beginning of the war. Some Libyans ranged them along the edge of the trench, took their station behind them, and hurled javelins, making themselves a rampart of their bodies. The wretched creatures could scarcely be recognized, so completely were their faces covered with vermin and filth. Their hair had been plucked out in places, leaving bare the ulcers on their heads, and they were so lean and hideous that they were like mummies in tattered shrouds. A few trembled and sobbed with a stupid look. The rest cried out to their friends to fire upon the barbarians. There was one who remained quite motionless, with face cast down and without speaking. His long white beard fell to his chain-covered hands, and the Carthaginians, feeling, as it were, the downfall of the Republic in the bottom of their hearts, recognized Gisco. Although the place was a dangerous one, they pressed forward to see him. On his head had been placed a grotesque tiara of hippopotamus leather encrusted with pebbles. It was Autoritus's idea, but it was displeasing to Matho. Hamilcar, in exasperation and resolved to cut his way through in one way or another, had the palisades opened, and the Carthaginians went at a furious rate halfway up the hill or three hundred paces. Such a flood of barbarians descended upon them that they were driven back to their lines. One of the guards of the legion, who had remained outside, was stumbling among the stones. Xarxas ran up to him, knocked him down, and plunged a dagger into his throat. He drew it out, threw himself upon the wound, and gluing his lips to it with mutterings of joy and startings which shook him to the heels, pumped up the blood by breastfuls. Then he quietly sat down upon the corpse, raised his face with his neck thrown back the better to breathe in the air, like a hind that has just drunk at a mountain stream and in a shrill voice began to sing a Balearic song, a vague melody full of prolonged modulations with interruptions and alternations, like echoes answering one another in the mountains. He called upon his dead brothers and invited them to a feast. Then he let his hands fall between his legs, slowly bent his head and wept.
This atrocious occurrence horrified the barbarians, especially the Greeks. From that time forth, the Carthaginians did not attempt to make any sally, and they had no thought of surrender, certain as they were that they would perish in tortures. Nevertheless, the provisions, in spite of Hamilcar's carefulness, diminished frightfully. There was not left per man more than ten commers of wheat, three hens of millet, and twelve betzes of dried fruit. No more meat, no more oil, no more salt food, and not a grain of barley for the horses, which might be seen stretching down their wasted necks, seeking in the dust for blades of trampled straw. Often the sentries on vedette upon the terrace would see in the moonlight a dog belonging to the barbarians coming to prowl beneath the entrenchment among the heaps of filth. It would be knocked down with a stone, and then, after a descent had been effected along the palisades by means of the straps of a shield, it would be eaten without a word. Sometimes horrible barkings would be heard, and the man would not come up again. Three phalangites in the fourth Dilochia of the twelfth Syntagmata killed one another with knives in a dispute about a rat. All regretted their families and their houses, the poor their hive-shaped huts with the shells on the threshold and the hanging net, and the patricians their large halls filled with bluish shadows, where at the most indolent hour of the day they used to rest, listening to the vague noise of the streets, mingled with the rustling of the leaves as they stirred in their gardens. To go deeper into the thought of this and to enjoy it more, they would half-close their eyelids, only to be roused by the shock of a wound. Every minute there was some engagement, some fresh alarm. The towers were burning. The eaters of uncleanness were leaping across the palisades. Their hands would be struck off with axes. Others would hasten up. An iron hail would fall upon the tents. Galleries of Russian hurdles were raised as a protection against the projectiles. The Carthaginians shut themselves up within them and stirred out no more. Every day the sun, coming over the hill, used, after the early hours, to forsake the bottom of the gorge and leave them in the shade. The gray slopes of the ground, covered with flints, spotted with scanty lichen, ascended in front and in the rear, and above their summit stretched the sky in its perpetual purity smoother and colder to the eye than a metal cupola. The Hamilcar was so indignant with Carthage that he felt inclined to throw himself among the barbarians and lead them against her. Moreover, the porters, sutlers, and slaves were beginning to murmur, while neither people, nor great council, nor anyone sent as much as a hope. The situation was intolerable, especially owing to the thought that it would become worse. At the news of the disaster, Carthage had leaped, as it were, with anger and hate. The Sufit would have been less execrated if he had allowed himself to be conquered from the first. But time and money were lacking for the hire of other mercenaries. As to a levy of soldiers in the town, how were they to be equipped? Hamilcar had taken all the arms. And then who was to command them? The best captains were down yonder with him. Meanwhile, some men dispatched by the Sufit arrived in the streets with shouts. The great council were roused by them and contrived to make them disappear. It was an unnecessary precaution. Everyone accused Barca of having behaved with slackness. He ought to have annihilated the mercenaries after his victory. Why had he ravaged the tribes? The sacrifices already imposed had been heavy enough, and the patricians deplored their contributions of fourteen shekels. 
and the Sicitia, their 223,000 gold kikars. Those who had given nothing lamented like the rest. The populace was jealous of the new Carthaginians, to whom he had promised full rights of citizenship, and even the Ligurians, who had fought with such intrepidity, were confounded with the barbarians and cursed like them. Their race became a crime, the proof of complicity. The traders on the threshold of their shops, the workmen passing plumb line in hand, the vendors of pickle rinsing their baskets, the attendants in the vapor baths, and the retailers of hot drinks, all discussed the operations of the campaign. They would trace battle plans with their fingers in the dust, and there was not a sorry rascal to be found who could not have corrected Hamilcar's mistakes. It was a punishment, said the priests, for his long-continued impiety. He had offered no holocausts. He had not purified his troops. He had even refused to take augurs with him. And the scandal of sacrilege strengthened the violence of restrained hate and the rage of betrayed hopes. People recalled the Sicilian disasters and all the burden of his pride that they had borne for so long. The colleges of the pontiffs could not forgive him for having seized their treasure, and they demanded a pledge from the great council to crucify him should he ever return. The heats of the month of Elul, which were excessive in that year, were another calamity. Sickening smells rose from the borders of the lake and were wafted through the air together with the fumes of the aromatics that eddied at the corners of the streets. The sounds of hymns were constantly heard. Crowds of people occupied the staircases of the temples. All the walls were covered with black veils. Tapers burnt on the brows of the Patek gods, and the blood of camels slain for sacrifice ran along the flights of stairs forming red cascades upon the steps. Carthage was agitated with funereal delirium. From the depths of the narrowest lanes and the blackest dens, there issued pale faces, men with viper-like profiles and grinding their teeth. The houses were filled with the women's piercing shrieks, which, escaping through the gratings, caused those who stood talking in the squares to turn round. Sometimes it was thought that the barbarians were arriving. They had been seen behind the mountain of the hot springs. They were encamped at Tunis, and the voices would multiply swell and be blended into one single clamor, and then universal silence would reign, some remaining where they had climbed upon the frontals of the buildings, screening their eyes with their open hand, while the rest lay flat on their faces at the foot of the rampart, straining their ears. When their terror had passed off, their anger would begin again, but the conviction of their own impotence would soon sink them into the same sadness as before. It increased every evening when all ascended the terraces, and bowing down nine times uttered a loud cry in salutation of the sun as it sank slowly behind the lagoon and then suddenly disappeared among the mountains in the direction of the barbarians. They were waiting for the thrice holy festival when, from the summit of a funeral pile, an eagle flew heavenwards as a symbol of the resurrection of the year and a message from the people to their ball. They regarded it as a sort of union, a method of connecting themselves with the might of the sun. Moreover, filled as they now were with hatred, they turned frankly towards homicidal Moloch, and all forsook Tenet. In fact, Rebetna, having lost her veil, was as if she had been despoiled of part of her virtue. 
She denied the beneficence of her waters. She had abandoned Carthage. She was a deserter, an enemy. Some threw stones at her to insult her, but many pitied her while they inveighed against her. She was still beloved, and perhaps more deeply than she had been. All their misfortunes came, therefore, from the loss of the Zamph. Salambo had indirectly participated in it. She was included in the same ill will. She must be punished. A vague idea of immolation spread among the people. To appease the Balim, it was without doubt necessary to offer them something of incalculable worth, a being handsome, young, virgin, of old family, a descendant of the gods, a human star. Every day the gardens of Megara were invaded by strange men. The slaves, trembling on their own account, dared not resist them. Nevertheless, they did not pass beyond the galley staircase. They remained below, with their eyes raised to the highest terrace. They were waiting for Salambo, and they would cry out for hours against her, like dogs baying at the moon. That was Chapter 9 of Salambo by Gustave Flaubert. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you back here at Chapter 10. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 